Welcome to the Queen Trail Podcast. There are three different types of radiation, alpha, beta, and gamma. What does this technology do? It's like, well, what can you do with electricity? I just survived 30 years HIV positive. I'm certainly not going to let a little thing like a brain tumor derail me. When I got to 29 pounds, I was so tired, I just collapsed. Everything always goes back to being grounded and centered. It's a mecca for cycling, for sure. Struggle is the neutralizing force. And I said, there it is. This is the right family. I'm, I got like cold chills. It's one lone oak tree right in the middle of the trail. It's beautiful. Hey everyone, I hope you had a great week since the last time that we got together. I want to start out with some exciting news for me that I'm really proud and honored to share. I'm a Davy Awards gold winner in the category of general interview talk show. And let me tell you, I was literally at the time when I found out about this having a day. I mean, it just sucked. And I say at the time, because I had no idea that the trend was going to continue for the rest of the week. The pinnacle of suckiness was yet on the horizon. And of course, I don't mean to say that there were not good moments mixed in there. And there were many. And I'm super grateful for them. And I do need to acknowledge them like having that unpleasant trend disrupted by an email that said, you're a Davy Award winner in the subject line. I thought, what? And it literally took me off guard in the most spectacular way. But there was more. I mean, this is how these great things happen, right? I had actually won a gold award. And I'm going to admit, I did the total overly excited newbie thing. I ordered an award. The thing is, these these things are not cheap, but also I don't care. And I kind of love the youthful impulsivity of my decision. But I mean, for a couple hundred bucks, which I'm going to say are measly, simply because it means that for that amount of money, I get an award on my shelf with my name on it that's going to remind me that I beat the odds and that maybe I could do it again. It's like motivation and encouragement and just sheer awesomeness all together on that spot on my shelf that I can refer to daily for inspiration. That's priceless. So anyway, while I was plugging in all of the necessary details to get my golden mic, it dawned on me that celebrities probably have to pay for their awards too. Like the announcement is made and publicized and cheered, right? But if you want a beautiful substantive statuette on your shelf, you got to pay for it. So I looked into it. Here's the costs. An Emmy is $350 for anybody who wants one. And I shouldn't say for anybody because some people get the Emmy, but if there happens to be multiple recipients, one Emmy goes to the group and then everybody else who wants one, you know, they either get to fight over it or they get to pay for their own. And also if you want a replacement for yours. 
So while I'm talking about Emmys, be sure to listen to my episode with Melanie Morose Edelstein, who is an Emmy award-winning television news producer. It's episode 29, and it's excellent. Um, I decided to just look at the EGOT because that's always the term that gets bandied about, right? Everybody wants to be, you know, the quadruple threat in these awards. So there's a lot of other awards out there, but I only looked at these four. So a Golden Globe is made of zinc, marble, and gold, and they run about $800. I have no idea who pays for this, if the winner pays for it or if they are presented with a Golden Globe. Oscars run around $400 to produce, but here's what's really interesting. The Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts and Sciences went to court in 2015 in a bid to prevent recipients from profiting from the sales of their of any Oscar actually distributed after 1950. And so in that ruling, they were granted a clause that states that a recipient cannot sell an Oscar without first offering it back to the Academy for one buck. That's because top dollar Oscars like Michael Kurtz's, Michael Kurtz was the director of Casablanca. His Oscar fetched over $2 million when it was resold. Tony Awards run $2,500 each, and they only give out two Tonys at the awards. So anybody else who receives the honor of being announced as a Tony winner has to buy their Tony statuette for $2,500. So really, I feel like this is usual and customary for award winners. And I I feel really honored that I was chosen among all of these other entries because it is an international competition. In fact, I just love this. If you go to their site, DaveyAwards.com, go to their about at the top, David defeated the giant Goliath with a big idea and a little rock, the sort of thing small agencies do each year The annual International Davy Awards honors the achievements of the creative Davids who derive their strength from big ideas rather than stratospheric budgets. And that's awesome because I don't have much of a budget. (laughs) So that's really cool. Um, Anyway, that's my fun update. And I am really excited to get back into the second half of my talk with Dr. Stacy Bettencourt of Four Winds ADR Coaching and Counseling. Last week, we went really deep into the weeds of eating disorders and traumas and recovering from it with confidence and deep inner strength, as well as an optimistic focus on the future. It was a really good episode, and the theme continues in this part two. We will be covering some subjects such as parenting and spanking and divorce. So there might be some triggers, just be aware of that. But we're also going to be talking about recovery through fitness and support groups, empathy and understanding, loving yourself and realizing that you're so much more than 
these events that come into your life. So there's a lot in this episode. So please grab a cuppa and join my lifelong friend, Dr. Stacy Betancourt and me in this continuation of our In the Company of Friends talk. You just mentioned your practice and, and earlier you mentioned your dissertation and getting your degree. There was a big break in between there because, you know, for the listeners, I should mention that we went through school together. So we've basically known each other, at least from from junior high forward, because I don't think we went to the same elementary schools. But then Stacy and I were in so many classes <laughs> through high school. We were. So there was a big break from college. It took you a while to get to the point where you wanted to get a doctorate. So what was the impetus behind that? Well, first of all, I've, I've got to say, because my junior high and high school years were so tumultuous, I want to thank you for always being kind to me. Oh, that means a you lot. You were always very kind. You were always very kind to me, where not many people were. Mm. and. I, you know, I've heard from some of our male students, of course, high school, we're all stupid, but (laughs) very much so. (laughs) (laughs) So many of them expressed that they thought I was, that they thought I was pretty and they thought I was a a fun person and they thought all these things. I'm like, why didn't you tell me? I grew up, you know, and it wasn't their responsibility, but, you know, I felt very unvalued. And part of that was my upbringing, but, you know, part of it was, you know, the environment. So I want to thank you for, for always being very kind to me, mm-hmm. um, always saying hi, always, you know, you know just being there, you know, I, I never forgot that. So I appreciate that. That makes me feel so good. I was just talking, you know, just a few days ago about how mean I was to a particular girl that we went to junior high school with. I was just like terribly mean to her because the cool kids, you know, in quotation marks, the cool kids were mean to her and I wanted to be part of the cool kids group. So I was mean to her and she didn't deserve any of this meanness. Um, but I, I uh, went out of my way to be mean to her one day and the PE teacher Gosh, I don't remember. We had a male PE teacher in junior high school with dark hair. I don't remember his name. I'll have to think about it. He walked over to me and he happened to be nearby and he walked over and he looked at me and he goes, oh no, Sil. And I kind of, I was surprised that he was right there and he goes, he goes, you don't have to do that. You're better than that. And it really made me mindful of what I was doing and so deeply ashamed. And I remember seeing this look on the girl's face and, you know, there's like certain people where you grow up, you become a parent, you become an adult, you understand empathy better and you wish, at least I do, you know, I wish I could go back and find out where this girl is now so that I can apologize to her um, for whatever amount of time, you know, to me, it was just a couple of weeks of me being mean. I never ended up with the cool kids because they ended up treating me like they treated that girl. Um, So, you know, I guess that's karma in the end. 
to me, it's, you know, a couple of weeks, but to her, it was just unbearably long time, I'm sure, just to have one more person being mean. So, you know, to be honest, I, it makes me feel so good to hear that I was kinder than my memory imagines that I was, you know, because I always just think back to that moment. And I'm like, I was probably like that all the way through high school and all through junior high school. Like you said, we're, we're all so dumb at that stage. We don't know how to control our hormones that are coming in. We're growing up, you know, our brains are literally going through this metamorphic process. We're trying to deal with our peers, keeping our grades in school at a level where they're supposed to be. And just, there's a lot that's being thrown at us. They are tumultuous. Um, so I'm glad that there was some kindness within me that, that, um, made a difference. It's, it's wonderful to hear that. Well, definitely. Um, and as far as my academic journey, it's kind of funny. I did not go to school. I tried very hard to avoid going to school. Um, the year I was graduating, my mother said that I was not smart enough. Just get a job, go get a mall job because I was going to get married early and have children. Mm. And I did get married at 23. In fact, days after my 23rd birthday. But yet, you know, the children never happened. And actually, in retrospect, I'm glad because I would have made a lot of mistakes. I would have been equally abusive. The cycle would have been bad. So I, I'm glad I was not able to have children. I think that's where I believe in a higher power knows better than we do. Mm-hmm. So whatever higher power you subscribe to, um, believe in, I think they really know what's going on. Uh, for me, I went to my father after that. My older brother's adopted. I was my father's only child that he created with my mother. And he looked at me and it was in one of my thinner moments. And I had the long blonde beachy hair and he touched my hand and he said, Oh, sweetheart, it's a good thing. You're cute. You're just not smart enough. Oh, that hurts. And that was like, wow, I was my father's only child. I mean, my brother is his son, no question. But I was created by this man. And he didn't even tell me I was beautiful. I was cute. Hmm. And that carried me. And then, you know, other comments about four more years, four more years. And I took a lot of certification classes. I mean, if I could tell you what I'm certified in, you'd crack up and we don't have enough time. (laughs) (laughs) um, I kept trying to avoid college. So I would take a certification class because four more years, four more years. And finally, one day I caught myself saying this to someone. I was almost 35 years old and I realized, oh my God. How many sets of four years have passed and how many more am I going to let pass? Early on, I got a job at a jewelry store, which gave me a false sense of security. At 19, I had credit cards. I ordered my first car, ordered it. Oh my God. Uh, Talk about a rush. I ordered every piece of that car and I didn't realize the difference between having a career and having a job. Right. And so, you know, when I finally realized, oh, my God, what happened is I was working for a major hotel chain and I was up for a very 
large position. And I used to answer this executive's complaint mail. And I was in Salt Lake City. They were in Virginia, yet people thought I sat outside their door. And I was commended, got awards. And when it came down to it, they said, we like her. She's an industrious worker. She's trustworthy. She's fantastic with conflict resolution. But we can't pay her this without a college degree. Mm -hmm. We just can't. So someone who did not know the company ended up not staying very long because they didn't understand the core values of the company. It, it didn't work out. But at that point, I realized I need to go to school. So I went to school. I started going to school for business, realized this was not in my heart. And at 35, I walked into Citrus College, very humble, took my placement test and started my journey. The arrangement in the household was school was my full-time job. I was to get at least a B average and finish in four years. Well, I almost had an A average, finished on time, including my credential, did it all in four and a half years with no college background. Wow. And then got a job in education, became a teacher, and teachers started losing their jobs. Well, I lost my job. I was laid off. I jumped into a master's degree, finished the master's degree, got rehired, could not afford the student loan. <laughs> So I said, well, I'll just go for my doctorate. <laughs> and now I'm a PhD. And it's funny now because I've reached the other side of it where I go back to getting certifications because I'm so overqualified in so many facets of my life, you know, adding arbitration mediation. But what's ironic in all of this is I never knew I was smart. Neither of my parents believed in me. When I would try to do my homework as a student in high school, I was accused of hiding in my room and hiding from my responsibilities. And I still managed B's and C's. In college, I was a straight A student all the way through. Um, like most of the time, I mean, A's and B's complete because you couldn't do anything or move on unless you had A's or B's. And I did it. And then my master's degree, I had a 4.2. In my PhD, I had a 4.0. And I realized, my God, I was the kid who wasn't supposed to go anywhere. I was not smart enough. I was just cute. Mm -hmm. That dialogue kept playing in your head. It did. It, it did. And I finally had to realize, okay, I just studied human behavior. I studied two quarters of eating disorders and generational trauma and all of these things. And I realized this was me, my parents and their inhibitions. My father was in the military for six years and he never got past a P2 in the Navy. He had dreams, but he didn't know how to go after them. So he turned to alcohol and died of alcoholism. Mm -hmm. My mother always wanted what was on everybody else's plate. And that's both figuratively and literally. If you ordered something from a restaurant and she ordered something else, she would try to bring her fork over to your side. <laughs> and her Alzheimer's and dementia was caused by environmental abuse that she did to herself. Mm. And I still have problems 
because of the damage I caused my body. But I'm getting better and my body's getting stronger. So I am undoing the damage. Mm. And I'm, you know, it's that kind of thing. I'm so much stronger than both of my parents. Yeah. You know, I was listening to a, uh, I was listening to a psychologist once. Um, I think his name was Dr. Stephen Marmer. This was like, ages ago. I mean, my kids were really little and, you know, Cameron is 25 now. So he must've been like a toddler at that time. So it's been quite some time, but he said two things that really changed the way that I parented, but one of them speaks directly to what you were just saying, where he said that if we're lucky, we will actually learn from our parents and become better than them and that is the goal of each generation that continues on to become better than their parents and I see that in my kids like I'm always like how in the world did you get so smart like I really think my kids are a million times smarter a million times more motivated a million times more amazing than I ever have been or could be, you know, like, I'm just clearly very proud of them. But I do see Sophie is so much more empathetic and thoughtful and kinder than I would be in a lot of situations. And so I let her take the lead, you know, I'm mindful of that, like, I'll be ready to just write somebody off. And, you know, she'll go, Oh, well, you know, blah, 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 blah. And it's like, God, I'm learning so much more from my kids than I ever taught them. But I think that that's kind of um, maybe what, you know, what happened with you was that you, you did learn from your parents. And that's what we're supposed to do. You know, we're supposed to actually learn from our parents. And it's interesting, because I see a lot of parents. And, you know, I probably have done it myself, I try not to, where we want to shelter our kids from going through what we went through. And so we do whatever we can to not allow our kids to have that experience. But we forget that they're looking at us like, don't shelter me, you know, like their perspective is they're looking, it's like looking through a two way mirror, like this side of the mirror is going, I'm going to shelter you and I'm going to keep you from doing these things, or I'm going to, or I'm going to control you and I'm going to stop you, whatever, whatever that motivation is. I'm going to stop my child from experiencing X, Y, Z and growing from that because experiences and challenges are what we grow from. And on the other side of the mirror, the kids are looking in going, um, I'm going to do everything that I can to not be stopped from doing whatever it is. And I was, I was with a group of people and there was a guy there who didn't have kids. He was, he was very metaphysical, like your friend that you were talking about earlier. Yes. And this lady was talking about like how it just killed her heart that her child was going to have to experience something like it was dolorous. You could hear the pain in her voice. And when she was done talking, he goes, you know, you've got to remember that your child is a whole other human being who has a whole different set of thoughts in their minds than yours, a whole different perspective of the world and a whole set of responses that are 
different than yours, different than anything you could ever imagine your response would be to something. And they might not fall as hard as you did. They might actually thrive by going through an experience that you're trying to shelter them from. You know, I think that we all know that at some level, but it's good to hear it again and so clearly every now and then that our kids are are not us and that the things that we are so afraid for them to experience reflects more on something that we need to work through than something that we need to keep them from going through, if that makes any sense. It does. It absolutely does. And that's the thing about like overcoming generational trauma. And I can remember vividly young little baby Stacy saying to my mother, when I grow up and have kids, I will never do this to them. And of course, you know, we never knew because I never had children, but the children I engage with, my goddaughter, who's now an adult, you know, all those things I I think over time I got better at, it transcends. I I think I've made a positive impact in the life of a lot of kids. Mm -hmm. Not that that was my focus. My focus was to do the best I could. And the exchange is that, you know, I have students who contact me who I had my first years of teaching and now they're adults. There was a student I had who made some bad choices and went to jail. And their comment was at the time, don't tell Mrs. B. Don't let Mama B know because I don't want her to know I I failed. And the mom told me, she's like, I don't understand what it is you have as far as a connection with my child, but they don't want you to know. So I'm coming to you because you've got some kind of impact. So, you know, you don't set out to do it, but if you're a good human, I think it automatically comes out. And I think you become a good human because you process the things that you want to put out into the world and the things that you don't want to put out into the world. And, you know, it's funny when you said baby Stacy, when I was growing up, like so many Latino families, spanking was a thing. I mean, like, it was it was a traumatizing thing. And I don't think that a lot of parents understand how tr- traumatic it is. And, you know, kids grow up and they're like, oh, yeah, you know, they laugh about it. My grandma used to come out and spank me with a belt or my mom would or my dad or whatever. And it's just like, ha, 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 ha. And because you're joking about the things that harmed you as a child, it gives you this false sense that it's okay for you to behave that way. And I have a lot of really strong feelings about spanking because of the way that it affected me personally. And, you know, everybody responds to it differently. Me personally, it really was an oppressive thing. I don't know that I talked about it, but I do remember thinking at a certain point I'm never going to have kids. I don't want to have kids. I don't want to bring people into this life that are going to have to deal with suffering. I I didn't even think about whether I was going to spank or I wasn't going to spank at that time. I just know that that's how negatively spanking affected me and how normal of a part of my life it was that it just like, integrated itself in in my thinking about this oppressive life you know and so when I when I did have kids I never spanked them um 
there was one time where Cameron was going to put his finger into a light socket or something that I did swat his bottom <laughs> and it wasn't a spank. It was like, we're refocusing. Like, yeah, yeah. Reset. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, he had like, I did cloth diapers at the time. I had yeah. like that tidy tidy service. So he was very padded and it didn't hurt him, but it, it made an impression on him. Um, yeah. So that was, that's, the one time that I even went anywhere near spanking with him. The next day I was blow drying my hair and, you know, he's toddling around with his bottle and he's standing in the hallway looking at me and the gears are going in his head. And he walks over to me and he puts his bottle down and smacks my leg really hard. And I'm like, what the heck are you like just out of the blue? This little kid smacking me. And on the heels of that, it was like, holy shit. I swatted his bottom yesterday. And today he's smacking me. This is something that he's never done. It became really clear to me at that moment that there is a connection there that if I hit you, it's okay for you to hit me. And how do you explain this to a child? Like, how do you raise a child spanking them, telling them it's okay for me to spank you? but you're not allowed to hit anybody else. Right. So they've never been spanked and I'm really um, happy for them. I don't know that I'm proud of myself, but I'm really happy for them that they did not have a childhood that included that kind of punishment. And, you know, going back to Dr. Stephen Marmer, he had talked about how allowing kids to fight with each other when they're little, you know, a lot of people say, oh, you know, that's just, that's what kids do. They just fight, you know, siblings fight with each other and they'll grow out of it. And he said, those are traumatic incidences to children. They don't feel safe. They really need an adult to step in and intervene. And when you don't, it sets up this pattern, these layers of resentment so that when these siblings grow into adults, they feel resentful towards each other. And it's really hard to disentangle or peel away those layers to get to the bottom of where it started. So as adults, you really do need to intervene and let kids know that they're supported, but that it's not okay to to fight with each other. So what I would do with them is, and they didn't fight very much. And it, it was just such a joy to watch them become each other's best friends is if there was an argument, I would just kind of let it go for a minute or two If it seemed to escalate or they weren't able to resolve it, I would just tell them, you guys can each go to your own room, sit there for as long as you need to, to calm down and get back into a place where you can be nice to each other and then you can come out. You know, it wasn't really a time out in in a punitive sense. It was just like, if you want to sit in there for five hours because you need it and be by yourself that's great. I'll bring you dinner. And you you know, like, that's your five hours of taking time for what you need. If you feel like you need to be in there for five minutes, and then you can come out and be fine. That's great, too. And you know, like a lot of times, just speaking up, they'd be like, I would rather play than go to my room right now. And then the argument, you know, the whatever it was, was over. Um, and I, I didn't have to do that very often. And then sometimes they would just go, we're not getting along. And so one of them would stand up and just go to their room. 
you know, <laughs> like eventually that that became like their way of just kind of I need my own time out, you know. Um, so I don't know. I feel like I went on this long tangent and I can't get myself back to where I started, but it had something to do with what we were talking about. <laughs> yeah, no, and that's the thing is like you know something you'd said had triggered, and I I always tell my students this story is back in the day a major amusement park used to sell these paddles and it had the area where you grip in fact if you searched it you'd find it uh, but it said it showed a fox and it the lamb's behind is all red mm. and it had an arrow that pointed to the handle saying grip here in times of frustration that's how accepted spanking your children was a part of our parenting practices. Mm -hmm. And I know that that thing had been glued and taped and taped and glued and glued and rubber band and everything else because, you know, my mother would break it on us. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think about how I once was told by my grandmother that, you know, the interesting part about using corporal punishment is that you can roughhouse with a toddler all day long they can fall down hard and they'll get up laughing but with your hand one swat to the bottom and they will fall into the most broken hearted tears they know the difference the same can be said about using words to correct behaviors over any kind of corporal punishment it's just it's easier to swat your kid on the fanny than explain to your child you know what, sweetheart, you just scared me with those actions. Right. You ran into the street, you scared me. You let go of my hand, and for half a second, I lost sight of you. You scared me. And it's that kind of thing. It's like, you know, hollering at students rather than explaining to students why it's not okay to run in the halls. And yeah, I, I'm guilty of that too, because sometimes it's so crazy loud, they can't hear me if I talk in a normal voice, but they're not going to hear me if I yell either. So it's, it's that, you know, what is quick, what is easy? And unfortunately, quick and easy is not always the best approach. Right. And I, I tie that into my coaching. You know, I, I, I tell my clients who have reached an epitome and it's like weight loss. You didn't get to the undesired weight overnight. You didn't get into this situation overnight. This was a journey, but you've now reached the end of the journey and you don't know what to do because you know you're at the end. You know you're done. For me, I knew I was done damaging my body and punishing myself when I could take the time. And it took two years. And this is after I did two marathons, but it took two years. Easter Sunday, 2020, I got back on my treadmill. And I never look back. And I burned that treadmill out. (laughs) (laughs) I literally burned it out. And, and, you know, and I love the physical challenge. I love the way my body's changing. And at my most lowest anorexic, bulimic weight now, I have muscles. I have body definition. I have energy. I have stamina. I sleep well at night. And again, I have to draw back to my peak challenge because they really help me on a level that I don't even think the coaches even realize because there's so many members, you don't get intimate, but the members connect with each other. I have a friend in the Netherlands. I have another friend 
you know, in LA, I have another friend that's in Scotland, you know, they're all over the place. And these are people I cherish. I have a friend in, in Poland, you know, and, and these are friends, you know, so you get much more than you bargain for. So wonderful. And it's just such a positive approach to handling life. Yeah, it does. It brings you a lot. You know, I used to be a fitness and nutrition coach and I was doing a lot of good stuff, you know? I mean, you just, you do feel really good. I was exercising, I was lifting weights. I was really super active, hiking, doing all the stuff that I love to do and eating really healthfully. And I did feel really good about myself. And it goes beyond being able to buy the cute clothes. It goes beyond looking great. I just did feel like I, I, I remember making the bed one time and just kind of snapping the sheet out and letting it flutter down. And there was just something that was so effortless about making the bed that time. And I realized that it was the strength in my muscles, that it was the flexibility because of the stretching that my body was in optimal shape and in optimal health. And and it's so minor because, you know, like sheets don't weigh anything, but it was just a moment that I recall that I was like, wow, I can get up on my tiptoe. I've got the agility, the balance, the mobility, the strength, and then mentally just the good feeling that you get, you know, when you're getting your seven to eight hours of sleep and reducing your stress through that and through the exercise and the healthy diet you know it's true it's really true it's like it's a gift to yourself yeah it's like the magical trilogy you know (laughs) (laughs) it really it does it makes like such a big difference so you've gone on from this lifelong journey of being very intimately aware of the negative side of parenting, going through your eating disorders, going through a lot of challenges that brought you to the point where you did get your doctorate and you've incorporated all of those experiences and everything that you've learned. You know, I mean, anybody who's gotten a doctorate, anybody who's gotten a master's knows that it's an arduous process to get there. And a lot, a lot of research, a lot of work that goes into it to open a life coaching and counseling practice. What motivated you to go in that direction and put that shingle up that, you know, you're in business to help others? Uh, What kind of motivated it is that I was in one of my required internships where you go in and you vest your hours for your doctorate. And for me, it was realizing that my PhD, because of the school, unfortunately, um, I was non-clinical. It sounds silly, but I didn't really understand the impact of that until I began to look at the differences between clinical, non-clinical, and what that meant for me, and what that meant for my, my future. And I realized that the PhD course I was taking was all research-based and that it had no ability to work with other people. So I had to begin to search for a way to use my education in a way that will help others. And that's when I discovered life coaching. And it has opened a lot of doors. I've added the divorce coaching, the divorce uh, recovery coaching. Mm. And then the more I've been in this industry, the more I have had an aptitude for law. 
And there were a couple of points in my life, in my academic journey, where I thought, do I want to be a teacher or do I want to be a lawyer? And unfortunately, I let people talk me out of it, the law avenue, because they said, oh, you're too sensitive. You know, you can't cry in front of clients, you know, and, you know, you're going to have to go this route. And it's not that I don't like teaching, but it's that I think I was more suited and going to school and getting my certification as an arbitrator and mediator, it's giving me a freedom that I didn't know I had. So it, I've kind of taken the long journey again to get where I want to go. Mm-hmm. And I'm not beyond, because I know in California and in Washington, I can take the bar exam and then intern under an attorney. Well, as a PhD, as an arbitrator mediator, and taking the bar, I would be an easy shoe in. So it's kind of an interesting thing. And I, I feel like even though the thought of going to school exhausts the heck out of me, yeah. it's not beyond my scope either. So that's kind of where I'm at in this point is that I don't know if I want to take the shortcut, go for four years of working underneath an attorney knowing that I already have the skill set or just continue to move down this journey, knowing I can mediate, I can arbitrate, I can coach, I can do a lot of things. So it's kind of interesting because I feel like I'm at a crossroads again. Things are starting to take off for me. You know, life is a journey and I'm willing to ride the ride. Yeah, yeah, it definitely is. And I think that there is no right choice. You know, there there's no right answer. It needs to be what you feel in your heart and in your mind. Um, you know, it's what's giving you the most sense of accomplishment and actually meeting your goals, which is to help others. But I just wanted to add that um, when I knew that I had to get divorced, it was it was traumatic, to say the least. And I think that was like a Saturday and I was stressing out, you know, my kids, of course, were. I was trying to keep them calm. And um, on that Monday, I called one of my girlfriends up who happened to also be my financial advisor and I would take my taxes to her all the time. And she ran a workshop. It was a divorce workshop for women because as you know, the statistics are that a divorce very negatively impacts women much more than it does men. In fact, divorces tend to elevate males' financial status quite a bit, whereas women are you know, often caregivers with the kids or their kids are used as pawns and taken away from them because of the lack of finances and just, you know, the the court systems are inundated. I knew about it. It wasn't like a huge eye opener to me, but it was really, uh, you know, when I was sitting in that courtroom, listening to the cases before mine, it was just kind of like, whoa, you know, like there's a lot of need for mediators and a lot of need for life coaches and counselors. Um, There's a lot of need during this traumatic time aside from 
a good attorney. And so because she ran these divorce workshops for women, I did go to one of them to support her when it first started. You know, she she needed to have people there to be able to show the folks that she was bringing in that this was serious. So at that time, I wasn't like really super happy in my marriage, but I wasn't looking to get a divorce. I was just like, oh, yeah, okay, I'll be there. I'll help you set up and whatever it is that you need. And, you know, like, this is awesome. So I went in and she had a psychologist who came in. I remember the psychologist passed out little cards, like credit card type cards. It was just like little tiny, like anger, do this, sadness, check this, you know, and that sounds very simple, but it was actually like, wow, this is really cool. You know, like this is stuff that you don't think about when you're in that moment. And, you know, when you're overwhelmed, grab your wallet, pull this little card out, look at it. And then on the backside, it had like some breathing exercises or, you know, something like that, you know, some meditative type stuff, which was great. And so that lady was there and talked for about a half an hour and we did like this calming exercise with her. And then the next woman that came up was talking about getting your credit started. You know, like a lot of women, and I'm talking specifically about women, and I don't mean to exclude that, you know, men go through their own trauma as well. I definitely don't, but I'm just talking right now specifically about the woman's perspective and my perspective of going through my divorce. But a lot of women don't have credit. They allow their husbands to be the ones that deal with the finances. And that is not 100% what happens. But you know, statistically, this tends to be a higher percentage of women will allow their husbands to handle finances than the other way around. And I think part of it is the way that society raises us uh, yeah. males, females, it, there's, there's a whole spectrum of gender identity, but in speaking specifically to males and females, males are raised to be tough, rough, get whatever they want. There, there's this level of confidence, but they're also expected. There's this expectation. And this is, I think, part of the resentment not 100% the story, but there's this expectation that you're going to grow up and take care of a woman. You're going to be the breadwinner. You're going to be the one that does everything in terms of finances, in terms of house repair, mowing the lawn, etc. Women are raised to be subservient. And you know, that's some of the resentment that comes up. They're the ones that are going to be the caregivers. They're the ones that are going to be patting their, you know, husband's head when he comes in and making sure that there's a glass of iced tea or, you know, whiskey on the rocks for him when he walks in through the door and dinner is going to be ready and that sort of thing. And I know that's very 60s and 70s, but that's still uh, an expectation that has rolled forward and continues to permeate, although women definitely are breaking out of that mold a whole lot more. But as long as those generations are still alive, it's still going to be something that molds society. And so these divorce workshops, I felt were really helpful. She would bring three experts in their various fields to talk about like getting your credit 
score up to a level where you can get credit when you leave that marriage so that your financial path is a little bit easier to navigate and therefore allows you to be a little bit more successful because that was a huge fear for me. One day we came home, it wasn't very long after we came home and Cameron said, huh, the site's not working. And so he went out to check the breaker. He came back in and he starts checking all the lights and he's like, the power's out. And we had like nothing, like every utility had been turned off. And not that I expected it to go on because, you know, during this time, I'm like, how am I going to take care of these kids? How am I going to make things work? Like, am I going to have to move back in with my parents? It was like, holy shit. But I had so much more ability than I ever thought because I did let my husband at the time handle all the finances. I was, you know, I was your typical married woman, you know, so I was that same person. Yeah. You know, I allowed him to do that. He told me I was like a financial idiot. And I believe that I really believe that we had to file bankruptcy like you did, like uh, so many people in uh, 2012. And I was told that it was my fault that I didn't know what I was doing with money. And I bought into it. I really did. I just thought I was a complete idiot. And because I went to that seminar just as somebody who was there to support her friend, I did listen to these experts and I thought, I have like zero credit. I literally have no credit. And I have this bankruptcy mark against me that's going to hang around for the next 10 years. So I started trying to build up my credit and I started using this little card that this lady gave me whenever I got upset, I'd go and pull it out and I'd be like, okay, what's it say for this? Okay, I'm going to try that. Flip it over. I'm going to do these breathing exercises. It's just these little things that you need. And then when the divorce happened, I can tell you that it's so traumatizing to go through something like that, especially when there's kids. And we definitely didn't have like any big property to speak of whatsoever. So I didn't even have to go through splitting a home. It was just kind of like, whatever you want, you can have it. We just want you to be out of our lives so that we can heal. Um, But it's such a lonely, lonely, often just devastating journey to take to go through that. And of course, here I am on the other side. But I just want to encourage you to not feel that not being an attorney is somehow less helpful to others than your counseling and your life coaching, um, because I think there's a huge need for that during during a divorce process. Agreed. And that's, yeah. And that's the thing. And part of me is that I don't want to do anything unless I have education behind it. Mm-hmm. everything I do, I've been certified for. So I don't need the attorney. I don't need to be an attorney. I wouldn't mind taking the bar exam just to be able to take the bar exam. Um, it's a $600 test. So uh, I need to be ready if I'm going to do that. But for my own self now, I never want to say what I'm going to enjoy this ride. And I, I, I do believe 
because of the training organization I went through for both the arbitration mediation, I already knew my coaching is worldwide. My arbitration mediation, as long as they are in with a certain group, I could eventually be asked to sit on an arbitration panel in, in Ireland. I could be asked to go to the UK and help mediate something. And, and, and I want to do so much more, and I'm going to start doing it, in that I want to publicly speak. I want to start publishing the books that I've been mentally writing. I am really trying hard to make this my last year of teaching. I like teaching. I will probably investigate teaching university online or guest speaking, but I see so much more that I can do for others. And in the meantime, my fulfillment that comes with it is such a win-win for everybody. And, and that's what I want to do. It's, it's truly time for me. And, you know, that's the thing is that I have finally found who I'm supposed to be. Overcoming life's challenges takes a monumental amount of courage. And I really don't think that any of us give ourselves enough credit for turning those negatives into positives. There's so much work to put into it, right? As well as a willingness to look beyond the brokenness in order to find who we're supposed to be. I'm so inspired and gratified to hear Stacy's extraordinary and transformative journey. And I cannot wait to see what new heights she conquers, both figuratively and literally. I'm proud to call her not just my friend, but a lifelong one. And I hope that this episode resonated with you in ways that make you feel validated and supported through your journey. Check out the show notes for links and keep sending me your questions and suggestions. I love hearing from you. Please also take a moment to rate this episode because your ratings really do help move this podcast closer to the top of searches so that my friends and I can reach more people. I'm looking forward to sharing more upcoming In the Company of Friends talks with you. So be sure to follow me on the socials and the dot com, all at the award-winning Queen Trail Podcast. That's T-H-E-Q-U-A-I-N-T-R-E-L-L-E podcast. I am Syl Annan, the Queen Trail, and until next time, I wish you passion, grace, confidence, fulfillment, elegance, and beauty.